It is a joy to be with you guys this morning. If you have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews this morning. As you're turning there, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus, and uh, it's a joy to get to be with you guys this morning. A joy to kick off spring break with you guys, uh, with hopefully a week coming for you guys. It's a little bit slower paced. So we are going to be Hebrews 1 this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 4, the writer of Hebrews tells us, Jesus, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? Will you pray with me? Lord God, we come before you this morning. We ask that you'd stretch us, that you'd move us out in ways with our lives that we may not even imagine. Now, Father, I pray even as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you'd teach us that my words would be yours, uh, that you would do in our lives and in our hearts as you see fit, and that we would be available to you whatever it is that you desire to call us to. Father, I pray even as we step into spring break, Lord, I pray that this upcoming week, and whatever it may look like for us, Lord, I pray that you'd stretch us. I pray that you'd refresh us. I pray that we can meet with you in significant ways, Lord. And Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, as we jump into Hebrews 1, I'll tell you guys, it's good for you to know about myself a little bit, that I, uh, over the last year, have become a giant fan of Jimmy Fallon as he took over The Tonight Show from Jay Leno. Uh, And one of my favorite bits that he does is a bit that he's entitled, In Reply To. In this bit, basically what he does is he takes a tweet from a celebrity and then he asks the question, what was that tweet in reply to? So let me kind of illustrate for you guys. You may have noticed at some point in time that Barack Obama tweeted this, that it's a desperate group of people trying to get our attention, but we must do our best to ignore them. In case you don't know how Twitter works, uh, someone uh, that you follow shows up in your Twitter feed, but you may not see the original tweet that prompted that reply tweet. And so Jimmy asked, what was that in reply to? To which he supplies in a creative fashion and a fabricated fashion this. Someone asked Barack Obama, describe dancing with the stars. So it's a little bit like walking up on the second half of a conversation to which you're asking, what was the first half that gave the provoking cause for that second half of the conversation that you just walked up on? Let me give you guys another example. Uh, Vladimir Putin uh, once tweeted, a walk among the tombstones, to which you might have asked, what was that in reply to? To which Jimmy supplies this, describe your perfect first date. He's got a little thing for Putin. And then here's my favorite of all. Uh, Uber tweets out, you simply get into the car of a stranger and they take you to your final destination. To which you may have asked, what was that in reply to? What was the original message that provoked that? To which Jimmy provides this, describe a murder. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you walked up on a conversation that was on the second half of it and you had no idea what was the original provoking purpose or reason for that second half of the conversation that you walked up on. Well, Hebrews 1, chapter uh, chapter 1, verses 4 to 14 feels a little bit that way to me. In verse 4, you get kind of the presenting argument of this whole chapter in which the writer of Hebrews says this, that Jesus has become as much better than the angels. The point of Hebrews 1, 4 to 14 is simple, that Jesus is better than angels. Uh, And then the rest of the passage is going to unfold why Jesus is better than angels. But The question that you may have as we jump into that passage, especially since we often don't necessarily think that angels are better than Jesus, is this. 
Why did the writer of Hebrews need to write that passage to that audience? What was the context? What was the original provoking reason why the writer of Hebrews brought this message to this audience? And then what does it have to do with us? Because the last time I checked, when I think about angels, this is typically what I think about and maybe what you think about. It's something like this. Weird little babies that are like pudgy. And I don't know why, but we got like ducks and Easter eggs around. And they typically have like disproportionately small wings that will take them nowhere. You know, like, like when I think of angels, that's kind of what I think about. So when the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is better than angels, I kind of go, yeah, no, duh. Like, I, <laughs> I don't need 10 verses for that argument, right? And so what is the writer of Hebrews doing? Well, really, as we think about angels, really the better portrait of an angel is something more like this. More of a warrior, more of a spiritually intense individual and an entity. And so I think for you and I, when we get into the Bible and we think about angels, the view that we have of angels is very different than the view that the original audience of the book of Hebrews had for angels. Frankly, I think their viewpoint of angels is more accurate Biblically speaking, then our viewpoint of angels. The problem for this audience, though, the original provoking reason for this passage is that their response to angels was highly inappropriate. They had an esteemed and exalted view of angels that actually moved them to want to worship angels. Not only did they want to worship angels, but they actually believed that angels would one day inherit the kingdom that was going to come and that the angels would rule over that kingdom. To which the writer of Hebrews is going to say to them, no, 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 you've missed the point. That's not the role, future role of angels. In fact, Jesus is better than angels. And so for you and I, as we jump into this passage, I'll tell you, as you think about angels, that in many ways this audience worshiped angels. In many ways they worshiped something lesser than God, which is what the Bible also calls idolatry. And so for you and I, we may not necessarily have a tendency to worship angels, but we all have a tendency to worship something lesser than God. Again, it's what the Bible calls idolatry. John Calvin puts it like this, that every single one of us, even from his mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols. That the moment that we're born, we have a tendency to worship something lesser than God. Paul will say in Romans 1 that we have a tendency to worship the creation and not the creator. We have a tendency to worship the gifts of God and not the giver of those gifts who is God. We worship something that is lesser. Now, in our idolatry, we don't necessarily bow before little figurines and statues that we've made with our own hands. So how do you and I know what are the idols in our life? Thomas Oden said it this way, One has a God when a finite value is worshipped and adored and viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. Sometimes you may not know the idols that are in your lives until they're removed away and all of a sudden life collapses and you can't figure out how to move forward with joy. Sometimes it's in the removal of the idol from our life as things get havoc and chaotic and crazy that we realize, wow, there was something misplaced in my worship and misplaced in my sense of security and satisfaction in life. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to say to you and I in the midst of whatever idol that you may have is that Jesus is better than your idols. What are your idols? If there is one accepted Christian idol within Christendom, it is caffeine. (laughs) If we remove caffeine, many of us may not be able to experience life joyfully. So we'll kind of remove that away, right? But for many of us, we have all kinds of idols. And some of them, we recognize that they're negative. Uh, The need for approval. The pursuit of affluence. The constant need for achievement. We all can recognize that that it exists in us and that in some sense it's negative. But also there are some good things in our life that we would inherently say are good, but they can become idolatrous for us. Some of us that have kids. Sometimes our own children, we can can become so rooted and built our life around them 
that our appreciation of that great gift of God becomes idolatrous. For some of us, it may be even be ministry, maybe even the opportunity to serve in a good cause for a good reason to honor God. And even in that service, it can become in a place in our lives that is idolatrous. That our lives become so rooted around that as an identity and a purpose that often when it's removed or something changes, all of a sudden our lives are completely come undone. We've taken that which is a great gift and we've put it in an improper place in our lives. So the writer of Hebrews is going to come to you and I and to his audience and say, Jesus is better than whatever idol that exists in your life. He's way, way better for two primary reasons. The writer of Hebrews is going to say that Jesus is better than our idols for two reasons. And the first is this, that Jesus has a better title. Notice again verse 4. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus has become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus' superiority over angels or over idols is because he's got a superior name. Names are significant. Sometimes we often don't get uh, the full sense of the significance of a name. I remember when Marcy and I uh, were having kids and she was pregnant and we were wrestling with the naming of our kids. I realized there are websites that exist all about kids' names. I remember there was a couple in our newlywed Sunday school class in Dallas that when they were pregnant, they could not agree upon the name of their child, which was a little bit cute in pregnancy. But once they got to the delivery room and they had this child, they still couldn't agree upon the name. And then we began to visit them and they're arguing about the birth certificate and the name that goes on. And it was incredibly awkward. Even more awkward was one time we were overseas and this couple uh, was going to have a kid and they told us that, hey, we want you to know the name that we're going to give our child. And they said the name is going to be Canyon. Uh, They were often jokers in our life. They were often pulling pranks on us. And so we were like, Marcy and I were like, no way. Like, who names their kid Canyon? Like, who does that? Like, no, we're going to do that. And so we doubled down. We're like, no, you're not. And then we began to realize, oh, yes, they are. And so we began to just backpedal really, really quickly because we had offended them. Because this is the name for their child. And they were stoked out of their minds about it. Names are significant And so Jesus is going to be superior to angels and idols because of a name. The question is, what is Jesus' name? We get it in verse 5. Notice where the writer of Hebrews continues. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. The name that Jesus gets is son. That Jesus is the son of God. What does it mean? Why is it significant that Jesus is the son of God? Why does that name make him different than angels and idols? Verse 3 tells us a little bit more when the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, that to be a son means you share the likeness with one's father. That there's a resemblance, there's a likeness with the father. Uh, Some of you guys may know this, but I'm a giant Dallas Cowboys fan. Uh, This is Jerry Jones and Stephen Jones. Stephen is one of Jerry's fathers. I know, this is always kind of difficult for me, all right? Uh, But here's what I want you guys to notice. There's not just a resemblance of posture between Stephen and his father, Jerry. There's also a resemblance of countenance. They look alike in some fashion and form and fashion. But the significance of Stephen as the son of Jerry Jones is not just that he shares a likeness or countenance, But there's going to be a role that will come in the future in which Stephen Jones will be the right-hand man now and he will be the future heir for the Dallas Cowboys. One day when Jerry's off the scene, it's going to be Stephen Jones' team to run. And so the future hope for all Dallas Cowboys fans rests not on Jerry Jones, but on Stephen Jones. And Stephen is one of at least three sons in the Jones family, but Stephen is the chosen son. Not just that he shares a nature and likeness with his father, but he is the son that will one day reign and rule. Now, I realize it's a little bit heretical to compare the Jones family to the Trinitarian nature of the father and the son, but I just did. (laughs) Blake probably won't let me come back when next time around, but 
there's a sense in which to be a son means that you share a likeness and that you will be the future reigning heir one day to come. And that's what Jesus will be. That Jesus as son shares a likeness with his father, but he also will reign and rule over the coming kingdom, not the angels. Which is why the name of Jesus as son makes him so much more superior to our idols. It's interesting as you think about your idols. Why do we run to idols? Why do we have idols in our lives? Why do we build things in our lives that frankly are rivals to God? Because when life seems so uncertain, we're looking for something to depend on. We're looking for something to give us security and often our idols, our achievements, our affluence, our approval often become the sources and the foundations for our security. But the writer of Hebrews is going to say here to you and I and to his audience is that Jesus provides a security that's even greater than any of those idols because the security they provide isn't even temporary. It's fleeting and it's shaky at best. And if Jesus is the son who will rule the coming kingdom one day, then surely he's more of a secure option and foundation for security than any idol that we could possibly have. Our idols cannot hold and bring security for us. First challenge I want to give you guys this week as you pull into spring break and as you have some space and some time to process and take stock of your lives, the first question I have is simply this. What are the idols that are in your life? What are those things that compete with your worship and your pursuit and a relationship with God? And second is this. As you identify those idols, what is it you believe about the security that they can provide you? Why do you pursue them with such imagination, such investment of time, such investment of emotion? What is it that you believe they provide? And do you need a reminder that Jesus is way better than that? That he's the coming king, he's the coming heir, he's the creator, he's the sustainer of the present order, and he's the future heir of the world. And so if that's who he is, then he's way better than any idol that we have. The kind of security that he can provide is way better than anything our other idols seem to promise, but frankly deceive us with. Jesus' superiority is not just linked to the fact that he has a greater title, but it's also linked to the fact that he has a greater set of tasks. That Jesus is going to do something that makes him superior to our idols. And the first is this. It comes in verse 6. Notice what the writer Hebrew says. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. For an audience that actually worshipped angels, verse 6 was like a finger between their eyes, like poking at their chest. (laughs) You worship angels, but you don't realize that the angels actually will worship God. So why are you worshipping a middleman, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Put it like this for us with our idols. Why do we put so much stock and imagination and emotion into an idol when those idols will one day bow before God himself? It's a false worship. It's a false God. And it can't satisfy. Uh, Some of you guys may know this, but my wife Marcy and I have two kids right now. We have a girl, Caroline, who's about five and a half. We have a boy, Colt, who's almost three. And for Colt, if there is one love affair in his life right now, it doesn't seem to be mommy and daddy, but it seems to be Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, all right? He wakes up in the morning. The first thing that he's thinking about, the first thing that he wants to do is if he could just watch a little bit of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Uh, When he comes before God and he prays and he thanks God for our food or he prays at nighttime, the first thing that he prays for, the first thing that he thanks God for, hot dog dance that occurs at the end of every episode of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. We may have a little bit of a false idol in our home, right? And here's the irony of it, though. 
as much as he's absorbed into this TV show with all the characters of Disney that dance and that you can dance with, that interact with you at some level, he has no idea that there's an even greater reality above that, which is Disney World, right? (laughs) That he can't even fathom what it would be like to actually do the hot dog dance with the actual Disney characters in person, interacting with him. He has no grid for that. There's a higher worship reality that he could get to, or in this case, a higher... (laughs) idolatry level he could get to, right? That one day he might, right? That's what he's hoping for, but he has no clue about it. He's worshiping something that's a middleman. This TV show is just a, a, a portrait of what is even a greater reality. Frankly, our idols are like that as well. That we get absolutely absorbed with something that is often the creation of God or is a gift of God, and we've missed the creator and the giver of the gift to begin with. We've gotten enamored with a TV show where we've missed Disney World altogether. That's what idolatry does, which is why C.S. Lewis says it like this. I think it's an incredible quote. He says this, God made us, he invented us as a man invents an engine. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from him. There is no such thing. See, God created us and designed us in such a way that our greatest satisfaction, our greatest security is found in our creator, God. And if you're here this morning and you don't know that creator, if you don't have a relationship with him, then your pursuit of significance, your pursuit of happiness, your pursuit and desire to experience peace is going to be a fleeting one. Because there's no such satisfaction, there's no sense of peace, there's no sense of significance that's meaningful and lasting apart from God. And if you don't have a relationship with that creator, God, that's the beginning place. Recognizing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God that the Father gave on our behalf, lived absolutely righteously and went to a cross where he died on our behalf, giving to us something we could not earn, eternal life allowing us to experience by grace unmerited kindness, what we can never be good enough for, forgiveness of sins and eternal life and a relationship with God. That is the beginning spot for so many of us. And if you don't know God, then that's the beginning spot for you. And I pray that that today could be a day where you might make that decision. But if you're here this morning and you already have a relationship with God, then what do we do? The second thing I want to challenge you guys as you pull back for spring break, as you look at the idols in your life, I want you to ask this question. What do you believe about the satisfaction those idols can provide you? Not just what about the security they can provide, but what about the satisfaction they can provide? What do you believe? And does the amount of your imagination, does the amount of your emotion, does the amount of your time and effort in their pursuit actually correspond to what you truly believe about the satisfaction they can provide? Because see, God is a creator who's designed us so that our greatest satisfaction is found in him and everything else is just less. Everything else is fleeting when it's not by his hand, it's not by his provision. That God has designed us and Jesus is superior to our idols and the satisfaction they can provide. That Jesus will receive all worship, which is why the pursuit of angels or the pursuit of any idol is absolutely foolish. It's lesser. Which really at this point, even as we kind of walk through this passage, verses 4 to 6 to me are hopefully a wonderful reminder for you. 
As you pull back at spring break, this is nothing revolutionary. This is nothing absolutely mind-blowing, but it hopefully is an opportunity for you as you pull back with hopefully a little bit of extra time for you just to take stock and inventory of where am I? What are the false rival gods that are in my life? What are the things that I put in too exalted of a place and that I need to recognize afresh and I need to come back before my creator God and realize he, him, he alone provides security and satisfaction. For me, it's verse 7 where this passage moves that is the most surprising part to me. Notice what the writer says that Jesus also does according to verse 7. He doesn't just receive worship, but notice the second thing that he does here. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? So the writer of Hebrews here is saying about angels. That God makes them winds, that they move to and from, and that their ministers are their flames of fire in which they glow and they represent and they shine. The most interesting insight comes in verse 14 about these angels. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? It's not just that the angels are going to worship God, but that God is going to dispatch these angels out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Which is why verse 7 for me is where this passage takes a shift and a surprising move. And it does something that I didn't see coming. That all of a sudden you get this picture of people gathering around to worship absolutely captivated by Jesus and you don't realize that this isn't the end goal and the point of this. To gather around a throne motionless and unengaged. That there's something even more. I think for many of us, as we think about our spiritual lives, it resembles to me much like uh, any teammate for LeBron James or the Cleveland Cavaliers, all right? Which if you watch a game, at some point LeBron has the ball and the rest of the guys on his team just kind of assemble to one side and they just kind of stop moving and they just start watching, right? They're just so enraptured and captivated by his amazing talent and ability. They just stop, gather around and watch. Which is a bit of the picture of the spiritual life that we stop, we have a moment like Mary where we gather around the throne of God and we worship and we take in the absolute beauty and the glory and the grandeur of God. But that's not the only picture of our spiritual life. It's not the only picture for the angels. The angels gathered in worship, but that wasn't their only thing. Because the writer of Hebrews tells us they also, not only did they gather in worship, but they were sent out as well. Which is not just a church that gathers in worship, but what is the church also called to do? also called to move out, right? Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. Jesus tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to the end of the age. That for so many of us, if we're honest, as we take stock, as we think about our lives, our spiritual life is about gathering around, hopefully, <laughs> worshiping really well, but we miss that we're also called to move out. We're called to move out. And if the angels are called to move out, then so are you and I. And so what, what do we do with that? I want to give you guys two basic ideas as we see that Jesus is going to, or that God will dispatch representatives out, these angels. Two ideas of how you and I apply that. How do we wrap this up? Where do we go with this? First is this. I want to challenge you as you think about your spiritual life, as you pull back a little bit over spring break, that you think through and you wrestle with this. As I look at my life, have I straddled the church and the world? Do I have one foot in the church world and one foot in the, in the world itself, the community, my workplace? Or have I put both feet squarely in one of those locations or the other? For some of us, we've so built our life in the church that we've completely lost touch with the world that's out there. 
For some of us, maybe we've built our lives so much in the world that's out there that we've lost an anchor in the church. I think for many of us, especially in this little Christian bubble in this community, we've built our lives so squarely in the church that if I asked you, do you have significant relationships and friendships with people who do not know Jesus Christ, some of you would say, I don't. If I were to ask you this morning, can you name five people that you're praying for who do not know Jesus Christ, that you're praying for an opportunity to continue to share of the hope and the grace and the message that you have that you know because of the gospel? For some of us, we go, I don't know if I even have five people. We haven't built our life in such a way that we're straddled with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And what I want to do is I want to push back against that this morning. If the angels are going to be dispatched and sent out, then so is the church. And so it's inappropriate for us to have created a holy little huddle where we've never moved into our community. That's not how the spiritual life is designed to be lived. And to be perfectly honest with you guys, as I think about our church, I think we're incredibly great at development and training and equipping, but we're not so good at outreach. We're not so good at stepping out into our community and being strategic about it. It's one of the weak areas of our church. And I want to push on that this morning. To say what you're going to see here with God doing with the angels is exactly what he does with this church, that we're called to assemble and worship, and we're called and sent out as well. The question is, are we doing both of these? Or are we only doing one? For you, if you're only doing one, which one is that? And how do you rebalance so that you can straddle the church and the world? For some of you, if you go, hey, I have no time to make meaningful deposits and relationships with people who may not know Jesus Christ, then I'm going to tell you, you need to think through how to rebuild your life. This will sound weird as a pastor at a church, but you may need to pull out of some kind of church activity. You need to create space so that you are meaningfully investing and pursuing people who may not know Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be sent out. Second idea for you guys is this, that it may be time to switch up some of your ministry experiences. And that if you don't have meaningful relationships with non-Christians or you feel like you don't have time, then it may be time to spin it back up and, and redo it a little bit and think about how to rebuild your life and rebuild some of the different deposits and commitments that you've made. Or you can take a commitment that you've made already and think about how to retask it and repurpose it. If you're in a home church right now, if you're in a small group right now, if you're in an accountability group right now, if the express purpose of that community is one about self-development and creating a, a community that is a bubble in the Christian world, then it may be time to think about retasking that so that you think about outreach as a team sport. Think about outreach as something that your community is called to do, that you're inviting people into your community. Because the threshold of the door of your home and into your community group is much easier to transgress than the threshold from our parking lot to our sanctuary for many people who don't know Jesus Christ. For many of you, I'm going to challenge you that your home is one of the most strategic ministry venues that you have to mobilize and to be a steward of for the kingdom of God to be advanced in a place where there's darkness and people don't know Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we want to do as a church that's coming up on the main key announcement this morning of opportunities that are going on is that we're going to actually help you guys think through how to potentially actually even host an Easter party. Uh, we kind of started to do these as an experimental thing last spring and we're kind of going to do it again as well. And what we want to do is come alongside of you guys and help equip you, resource you, to not bring people necessarily here, but to move into your neighborhoods strategically. And to think through how can you 
uh, capitalize on the message of Easter and the hope of the resurrection and bring that message of hope to a community that's around you. If you go to our website, www.grace-bible.org slash Easter party, you're going to find all kinds of resources, all kinds of opportunities to do a party maybe with kids or maybe with adults. That no matter what your stage of life is, no matter what your situation is, there's a whole bunch of stuff there on the website to help equip you and mobilize you to step into a community, to step into a classroom, to step into a, a workplace and think through how you can utilize Easter to bring around a message of hope and of the power of the resurrection to those that may never have entered a relationship with him. See, the church is called to assemble, but it's also called to go out. Part of what we want to do is help mobilize you to do that. I want to end with this one quote that I think is incredibly encouraging. So I'll tell you guys, as I think about our home or I think about outreach, my wife Marcy is an incredible extrovert off the chart. Uh, hospitality is kind of one of her gifts. I keep thinking, why are all the people eating my ice cream? So I kind of approach it sometimes a little bit from a different perspective. I'm an introvert, so it's just hard. It takes a lot of effort to do it. And so I kind of want to say to you guys, no matter where you are in the personality spectrum, no matter where you are in the state of your home, no matter where you are in the life stage of your family, no matter where you are on how effortless and easy it is to bring people together, there's an opportunity to utilize your home in a really significant way. Uh, Shana Nyquist says it this way, that we throw open the front door and we invite people into our home, despite its size, despite its imperfections. We practice hospitality, creating a soft and safe places for people to connect and rest. I think one of the uh, most unrecognized, unimplemented ministry venues that you have in your life is your home. And part of what we want to do is begin to equip you and to help you think through how to utilize your home base in a way that is one of the most strategic ministry venues that you have. It's fascinating as you look at the Gospels, as you look at the book of Acts, the way that the home was really the key vantage point for all of ministry. The church met in homes. Ministries occurred in and out of homes. Meals were broken, bread was broken, meals were shared, and relationships were formed at a table in a home. One of the most strategic uh, concepts or paradigms and venues that you have in your life is the table And it is your home. And the threshold to cross into that sphere is much easier for someone who may not know Jesus Christ than the threshold from our parking lot to our sanctuary. I want to challenge you as you think about pulling back at spring break, think about where is it the Lord has you? What are those spheres that the Lord's put you in that he's given you a unique opportunity to be a minister for the gospel of Jesus Christ? To be a one who's been called and sent out to represent him and to extend a message of hope and grace, and not just a message, but an experience for people of hope and grace as they're brought into your community and your family and your home. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you immensely uh, that though we were once excluded, you came close to us. That though we were once far away, you came near to us. That though we were once without the promises and without the covenants, that you brought us your extravagant grace through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we step into spring break, Lord, that you would give us some space to come back before you and just wrestle with where are we in our pursuit and our worship of you? Are there false gods? Are there false competing rivals in our affections and in our worship? And if so, Lord, help us to see they don't even come close to providing the kind of security and the kind of satisfaction that you do. They don't come close. Lord, to help reveal that to us, help us to see that as it is. And secondly, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to look at our lives and wrestle with not just our coming and sitting before you in a merry kind of moment in worship, 
but I pray that you'd also cause us to be sent out and you give us eyes to see where you're calling us to. That you give us courage to step across a sidewalk, across a classroom, across a workplace, across a street, and to make a connection and to build a relationship and to build a friendship. Lord, allow us to honor you. Allow us to represent you. Allow us to be salt and light in our communities and our workplaces for your glory and for your gospel of good news, Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit, we pray. Amen. You guys have a great spring break. If you guys have more questions about those Easter parties, we actually have a table in the foyer. You guys can find out all kinds of information. We have people there that would love to talk with you guys. Y'all have a great week.